over yours. Pray about what God wants you to do. And uh, we'll try to get these in by the end of the month. And then food for the needy. Um, if you know somebody that needs food, there's a little thing down here on the bottom of the flyer. Let us know. Give us their name and then give us your name so we know where the contact is. And uh, now this will go from this week to November 20. We're changing something this year. Normally we do food baskets Monday before Thanksgiving. This year we're going to do them Friday before Thanksgiving. And uh, so bring food, give money, whichever you want to do or do both. And uh, we'll make up food baskets for the needy for Thanksgiving. Yes? Say that again. We usually do about 10. That's by the time, yeah, probably around 10. I think that's what we did last year. And then don't forget, we like to put a turkey with each one. So if you want to donate a turkey, uh, just bring it in. We'll put it in the freezer downstairs and uh, help folks for Thanksgiving. And if I, I say many times, people are blessed when you do that. And uh, there's been times when people have actually wept because we did that. Yes, ma'am. Well, we'd rather not do that. Uh, right now, we're starting on the staples, uh, canned stuff, noodles, stuff that won't spoil. And, uh, and here, here's what we do. We collect all that, and then we collect money as people give in, in an offering. And the day they make the baskets, one of the first things they do is my wife uh, gives a couple of the teams money to go to Aldi's or wherever and buy, like, milk, eggs, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so it's a nice food basket. It's not just a Thanksgiving meal. It's sometimes we like to refer to it as almost a week's worth of groceries. And uh, we're trying to be a help, trying to be a blessing to people. So... Be thinking about what you can do. And then again, if you have a name of somebody, uh, let us know. I think we'll leave those right there. Okay, we're in Colossians chapter 3. And we started this series on one another. And today we're going to talk about admonishing one another. Admonishing one another. Colossians 3, verse 16. The Bible says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, Father, we're thankful once again for Sunday school. We do praise you that the bus could go out once again and bring in boys and girls. And we're thankful for the folks who, who have driven in and and now we need your blessing. We've prepared, we've done all we know to do in preparation, but it'll all be for naught if you don't anoint our teaching and, and uh, ministering as only you can. Thank you for the teachers who are right now dealing with the boys and girls that came. And continue to bless and use them to accomplish your work and your will. And then bless here in our adult class that something that said something that we see would, would change our lives and would be 
your word would affect our lives like you want it to. I pray that you give me strength of voice today. You know that situation and that need, and I pray that you'd help me there, that I can be the messenger boy you want me to be. So, Lord, bless our Sunday school hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Admonishing one another. Here's a question for you. Do you resent being reproved? Hmm. If, if we're real honest with ourselves, we would probably say yes. And uh, I know my, I'll confess my sin in my own. My first reaction is the natural man. And the natural man don't like that kind of stuff. And then I got to somehow get back over to the spiritual side. Or maybe, maybe you're indifferent to admonishing someone who really needs it. You know, sometimes we need to speak up. Uh, speak the truth in love. And sometimes we're called on to do that, uh, to help somebody. And we're going to talk about how God wants his word to dwell richly in our lives and to teach and admonish one another according to his word. Maybe this week you might have had an occasion to admonish somebody. Maybe at work or maybe in your family with your children. And admonish, say you're using that word. What exactly does that mean? When you admonish somebody, you're warning them or reproving them or exhorting them in some area. Have you ever noticed that most people do not like being told what to do? No kidding. The reason people don't like being told what to do is it goes against the natural man. The natural man says, I want to do my own thing. You know, you I don't know if you've ever had the occasion, but you've had to admonish somebody, and uh, they tell you, uh, leave me alone. You can't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. And it's not just children that react that way. Hmm. Sometimes as adults... We can and we do react in the same way. Well, what is it that makes us react that way? I said the natural man, but what, what about the natural man? She said it, P-R-I-D-E, pride. Who are you to tell me what to do? But listen, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Hmm? Sometimes if we're really, really going to be a friend to somebody, and sometimes if we really, really care about somebody, we're going to have to do the hard stuff and admonish them. And that's to warn them or even to rebuke them. Because of our pride, we tend to rebuff correction and choose to do as we please. And uh, there's a little story here about a woman who was speeding in a yellow sports car out in Kansas. She was pulled over by the police at 1 a.m., for driving 92 miles per hour in a 75-mile-per-hour speed zone. The police officer wrote his ticket, gave her the ticket. She took off in her car, and as she pulled away, she accelerated to 142 miles per hour. Well, the police caught up with her, and immediately they arrested her. You're not going to tell me what to do. Hmm. 
We may have a tendency to protest against it, but the truth is, from time to time, we all need to be admonished. Don't like it, but need it. You know, we joke about the wet paint sign. How many of you have ever seen one of those? Do not touch wet paint. What do we do? We want to touch. Or keep off the grass. That's always a good one. What's it make you want to do? Hmm? We're just that way. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. But for a believer, that's not a good place to be. Most of us, and I was thinking about this as I was preparing this, most of us would not be here today if we didn't heed some of the warnings over the years for our safety. And, uh, you know, every year we hear about, during the summer, we hear about people being drowned up in the quarries up here in the slate belt. Now, they have signs and warnings all over the place up there. Don't swim here, danger, that kind of thing. And people don't heed it. Who are they to tell me I can't swim here? And sometimes it, it requires an awful price. Now, admonishments are necessary for growth in our Christian life. If you are a mature believer, you want to be admonished. Now, that's quite a statement. Why, why would we say that? Well, if you're a mature believer, you understand if somebody's admonishing you, it's for your own good. Hmm? In Colossians 2.1, we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae. And these are, these are people Paul had never met. We don't have any record of him ever being in Colossae. But according to Colossians 1.1, Timothy started this church while Paul was over at Ephesus for two years. Paul wrote this epistle to the Colossians during his imprisonment in Rome. So this is one of those prison epistles. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he was dealing with false teaching that had crept into the church. Now we've looked at chapter 3. We've just seen one verse. But throughout the chapter, Paul challenges the church in, in, in several different areas. In verse 1, he challenges believers to seek heavenly values. And then in verse 5, to abstain from earthly sensual lust. Let's look there. 3.1, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And then verse 5, to abstain from earthly sensual lust. He says, mortify therefore your members. By the way, mortify means put to death. Uh, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so he, he instructs us to abstain from those kind of things. And then in verse 10, he tells us we ought to put off the old man and put on the new man. He says in verse 10, and have put on the new man, um, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And then verse 11, he challenges these believers to have respect one to another. He says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
And so we should have respect of every person. And then lastly, he tells us to forgive one another in verses 13 and 14. He says, uh, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do also do ye. And above all things, all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. So Paul's writing instructions to these believers in Colossae, and uh, this chapter is just filled with them. And then, of course, verse 16 is our, our text verse where he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so we see this, this idea of admonishing one another. And the first thing we want to look at is the message of admonition. Admonition. For our being admonished to be effective, we need to have the word of Christ in us. Verse 16 begins with, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The basis and success of our admonishment is dependent on how thoroughly the word of Christ is dwelling in us. The indwelling word is what makes the difference between our admonition our admonition being simple, uh, being our simple opinion, or being truly biblical and helpful. Listen, we don't need to admonish people based on our opinions. We all have opinions, and uh, somebody said opinions are like armpits. We all have a couple, and they all stink. Hmm? So if we're going to admonish somebody, uh, we don't do it because of what I think or what I feel. We're supposed to admonish people based upon what does the Bible say. Hmm? If someone's violating Scripture, well, then we ought to admonish them to get right with God and, and stop what they're doing. And by the way, we can also admonish by encouraging. We see somebody going in the wrong direction, encouraging them to get turned around. Amen. So we see that the message of of admon admonition. And the first thing is it is sure. It is sure. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ refer refers to the revelation Christ brought into the world. And of course, that is the Bible. When the word is uh, of Christ is the basis of our message, our admonishment is effective because God's Word is sure. You know, in the preaching of God's Word, I don't want to give my opinions and my ideas because everybody has their own. But when I preach the Word of God, this is truth. This is absolute. And I can do that with all confidence. And uh, let me share this. If you, if you buck up and and uh, rebel against uh, when I'm preaching the Word of God, well, you're a backslidden Christian. It's that simple. When somebody says, well, this is what I think, we have the idea, well, that's just what you think. But when somebody says, thus saith the Lord, now we're in a whole different ballgame. Amen. You know, one of the tragedies is there's, 
dearth of thus saith the Lord being preached in our churches today. Hello. What a psychobabble. Well, anyway. When the word of Christ is the basis of our message, our admonishing is effective because God's word is sure. The Bible is true. The Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is infallible. Because it's from God himself, we can place full confidence in the word of God. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And that, go over to Hebrews for just a minute. A couple of pages towards the back of your Bible. And look at Hebrews chapter 4. Most of us are familiar with this verse. Verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I learned something a long, long time ago. I learned that God's word can get down into the heart of somebody, and I can't. Hmm? When I give my opinion, it's not going down into the heart of somebody. But when I give the word of God, it penetrates the very heart of people. And by the way, it can change hearts. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. So, it is sure. And then, it must be settled. What do you mean by that? The word of Christ not only needs to be present, but Paul says it should dwell in us. And that word dwell is an interesting word. It translates from the Greek word enoikio, which means to settle down in or to be at home in. So the word of God ought to be settled down in us, at home in us. That means the Bible is not to be a mere passing thought, but the constant focus of our lives. If we're to be a good spouse, a good parent, or a good boss at work, the Word of God needs to be settled down and an integral part of our very being. It needs to permeate our lives. George Mueller said, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and our thoughts. Now, it's not just true for our own lives. Before we can give good advice or good admonishment, we need to have God's wisdom dwelling in us. And in John 15, Jesus said, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. So God instructs us in a couple of different places that we meditate on his word uh, day and night. Psalm 1, most are familiar with that. That psalm, it says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And this idea of meditation um, it's not, well, the New Agers have come along, you know, and they've taken this thing of meditation to a different place than what the Bible talks about. Uh, meditation for the, according to the um, 
yoga people, I guess we could call it that, is uh, they want you to meditate for the well-being of your, your body and your mind and, and uh, you know, all that kind of mess. So yoga combines physical exercise and spiritual meditation in order that you might have, have uh, personal wellness. But that's not the meditation God's talking about. We don't meditate on the Word of God by chanting over and over the same phrase, uh, the, you know, our mantra or anything of that nature. Biblical meditation is very simply rehashing in your heart and in your mind what you found in the Word of God. Joshua 1.8, go over there for just a minute. In Joshua 1.8, the Lord tells Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success day and night. We need to rehearse and rehash in our hearts and in our minds what we read in, in the scriptures uh, before we started our day, what we heard in the message on Sunday from the preacher or the lesson we had in Sunday school from the Word of God. We need to bring it back and rehearse it. You know, it was, I always refer to that meditation in the Bible kind of like a cow who chews its cud. Now, you know, a cow can't process everything out of the grass the first time it eats it. And how many of you have ever been around a cow that was eating? <laughs> they are some noisy creatures. When they're getting that grass, they make a racket. But, you know, they fill themselves up with, with that grass, but they didn't get everything out of it the first time around. So they go lay down somewhere, and they start bringing that grass back and chewing it. Now they're getting everything out of it they can get so that they can produce milk. Well, we're supposed to do that with the Word of God. Bring it back and rehearse it and think about it and meditate on it. Too often, you know, we read and, and maybe we come to church and we hear, and as soon as, as soon as we walk out the doors, we forget. Or maybe we read something in our Bible before we set out for work in the morning, and as soon as we get out the door, it's gone. No, we need to think about what does the Word of God have to say and what does it say to me? Hmm. Like a, like a cow re, rehashes, if you will. That's how we should meditate on God's Word. We take a passage we've heard preached or we have read or memorized and think on it, and we draw application of that principle or whatever it was to our personal life. And that allows God's Word to not only pass through our minds, but to actually permeate our minds, our thinking, and our beliefs. We don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. We, we kind of put a little roadblock in there and stop it up and dwell on it for a little while. For God's Word to dwell in us, we need to study and we need to know it thoroughly. And there's one reason right there why a lot of Christians do not have God's Word dwelling in them richly because it takes work. 
W-O-R-K. What kind of work? Reading, comparing Scripture with Scripture, praying over the Word, asking God to help you to learn more, and using whatever tools you can find to instruct you that you might learn more. Listen, we have at our fingertips nowadays so much information, it's, it's unbelievable. Now, not all of it's good, but we can have good information at our even through the Internet and those kind of things. You know, when I first got saved, uh, we didn't have any Internet. We didn't have any computers. Boy, the young people, they have no idea. You know, back then, the six-transistor radio was a big technological advance. So if a person was going to be in ministry, he would start to build a library. And why would he do that? So that he had information at his fingertips when he needed it. And uh, but nowadays, you don't have to build a library. There's a library accessible to you uh, 24 hours a day. It's all out there. And we need to uh, avail ourselves of those things to help us to have a greater grasp of the Word of God and an understanding of the Word of God. And part of my responsibility is to try to help you in that. But it don't all fall on my shoulders. That's why God gave individual believers the command to study to show thyself unto God, uh, uh, approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And so many Christians, you know, they'll come to church and and uh, they'll hear the preaching, and they don't have a problem. You know, they're, they're, they're glad for the preaching and things. But then for their whole week, they're not in the Word. They're not, not studying, not even thinking about the Word of God. And that's not how we're supposed to be. Jerry Bridges said this, As we prayerfully expose ourselves to the Scriptures, we begin to understand what God's will is regarding our conduct and character. And then as the Holy Spirit applies his word to specific areas of our lives, and as we are obedient to his promptings, we begin to develop Bible-based convictions. Our values begin to change so that God's standard becomes our delight and our desire. Hmm. Did you get all that? You say, well, it was a pretty long quote there, preacher. Uh, in essence, it's saying when we get in the word of God, and truly meditate upon it. It changes our lives to where we conform to it. That's the reason there's a lot of Christians have a problem with conforming to what the Word of God says because they don't know what it says. Hmm. When we have God's Word dwelling in us, we're able to admonish one another with wisdom and with grace. Our text verse continues that we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And richly has the idea of abundantly, extravagantly, if you will. The word of God should dwell in us so abundantly that it flows over in our speech and interactions with other people. Hmm. It's interesting when you're dealing with a situation, even with unsaved people, where they come to you and they maybe want some advice, and you can give them the Word of God. Maybe you won't have it in your hands, but you have it in your heart. And you can say to somebody, you know, the Bible says, 
That's a whole different thing than here's what I think. Amen. So it's supposed to be at home in us so that we have it to call upon, dwell in us richly. Somebody said this by way of illustration. Have you ever walked past someone wearing an excessive amount of perfume uh, so much that it overwhelmed your senses? Well, I've had that experience. And it's not just perfume. I've, I've seen men walk by with their cologne and good night, like to knock it over. Now, that is the effect God wants when he instructs us to dwell in his word richly. He wants us to be so immersed in his word that it flows out from the way we live and permeates every aspect of our lives. Let me ask this question. Who's in charge of your life? Who calls the shots in your life? You know, it should be the word of God. When we have decisions to make, when we have directions to go in, uh, in our daily life, what is your God? What do you base everything on? Should be the word of God. Now, there's four ways the Bible is going to dwell in us. And uh, I put this, this on your paper. I, I don't know if I put it up here or not. Yep, I did. Four ways for the Bible to dwell in us. Number one, we need to hear it. Need to hear the Bible. Are you attentive to God's word? Matthew 13, 9 says, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear when the Bible's being taught, when the Bible's being preached, are you listening? Are you thinking about what I'm going to do after church? Are you making your grocery list? Hmm? You know, it amazes me. People will come to church and sit in the pew and never listen to what's said from the pulpit. When I was in Bible college, we didn't have a church building. We met in a gymnasium the whole time I was there. And so we would have maybe 1,500, 2,000 people in that gymnasium. Now, my wife and I found a place to sit when we first got there. I'd say about a little past halfway back. Now, we were comfortable there because uh, there was a high platform. It was a stage, actually, that they used for plays and things in this gymnasium. And so it was about this high. So the speaker was up that high, and we, we sat in a place where we were comfortable. We weren't like this, and yet we could still hear and, and everything. So we were very comfortable in this place. And it was, uh, the preaching was wonderful. Dr. Bob Gray was, was the, the pastor then and, and uh, one of the prince of preachers, and, and we had many guest preachers who were well-known, and, and we enjoyed it. But there were a few times when somebody else would sit where we normally sit, and we'd have to find another place. And a couple of times we found ourselves sitting more towards the back of the church. Now, this distressed us, but we noticed something. There were two services going on at the same time in that church. There was a service where the first two-thirds of the, of the church was involved in what was going on in that platform. And then in the back of the church, people were talking, people were writing, again, their grocery list, people were doing crossword puzzles, all kinds of things. 
Now, they came to church. They could say, somebody say, did you go to church yesterday? Yeah, I went to church. What good is it? We need to be attentive when the Word of God is being preached, when it's being taught. Hmm. Are you attentive? Do you read your Bible during the week? Heard somebody referring just this past week to the idea of people who bring their Bible to church and then when they go out, they throw it in the back seat of the car and they don't touch it till next Sunday when they're going into church again. That's not how it's supposed to be. The Word of God is to, is to be the nourishment for our daily life. And that's why I advocate, uh, you know, you do it when you want to, but I advocate getting in the Word of God first thing in the morning. Getting fed up. Hmm? Getting fed and so you're nice and strong and able to handle what's coming for the day. So we need to hear it. And then we need to handle it. Again, I gave you 2 Timothy 2.15. We're to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, we talked about the Bible being our sword here a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, but the challenge was, you better learn to use your sword. Hmm? You don't want to be a novice if you get in, in a sword fight. Hello? Remember uh, Errol, Errol Flynn? Errol, Errol Flynn? The swashbuckler, you know. and He, he could handle that sword. Well, we need to be able to handle our sword. Sadly, too many people are novices when it comes to handling the sword. But it's our only weapon. The Word of God is the only offensive weapon we have. And if you'll remember when Jesus was tempted, that's exactly what he used to defeat the enemy. He quoted Scripture. And so we need to be able to, to study and to in, have the Word of God indwelling us Every Christian is a believer priest who's able to read and understand the Bible for himself. Say that again. Every Christian is a believer priest who's able to read and understand the Bible for himself. You say, oh, preacher, there's a lot of things in the Bible I don't understand. Well, listen, you're not going to get it all at once. How many of you learned how to count when you went to first grade? How many of you learned how to add when you went to second grade? How many of you had algebra in third grade? Well, no, preacher, that would be too hard for a third grader. That's right. So in third grade, they started you on how to multiply. And you got your times tables. Remember those? Hmm? We used to call them the gazintas. And, and third and fourth grade, you got into multiplication and, and, uh, and division. And you learned all that. You built upon line upon line, precept upon precept. And pretty soon, you did get into algebra, but now you're ready for it. You know, that's how it is with the Word of God. We need, we need to get started on it and learn line upon line, 
precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. You know, the Bible in some ways is like a, like a big puzzle. I have a, a, how many of you have jigsaw puzzles? Any of you do those? I have a son that loves to do Coca-Cola jigsaw puzzles. Now, he don't do little ones. He does big ones. And when he's done, he frames them. He puts on whatever you're supposed to put on and uh, frames them and everything. But his will have a couple of thousand pieces to it. But he loves to do that. And, you know, when you do one of those jigsaw puzzles, uh, when you first look at it, you're saying, whoa. And then you start putting the pieces together. And pretty soon, uh, this piece fits here. Oh, yeah, and this piece fits here. And that's the way studying the Bible is. I shared with you how when I first got saved, I got burdened to read through the entire Bible. So what I did was I went and bought a Bible about this big. I still have it in my toolbox at home that I had when I worked at the can company. I bought that Bible, and I took it to work with me. Now, when I worked at that can company, I was assigned three machines. As long as those three machines were running, the boss didn't care what I did. Matter of fact, he was happy. Now, when they broke down, well, I better get busy and get them going again. But I had just made up my mind that I was going to read through the Bible, and I took the Bible to work. And when my machines were running good, I would read. Boy, what a stir that caused. My coworkers, Gilmore's reading the Bible. But you know, I read through the whole Bible. Now, did I understand everything I read? Heavens, no. I, I sometimes uh, think about those days, and I remember uh, I didn't understand that a lot of those people in the Bible were the same people. The Jehoshaphats and, and you know, that kind of thing. And, and uh, I, I, I had no idea. I, the book of Acts, when I read about Paul traveling, I, I didn't know what that was all about. But I read it, and I picked up some things. But then you know what happened? I started reading it all the time. And suddenly, pieces started fitting together. Oh, yeah, this goes here, and this goes here. And you get an understanding, and you're able to wield that sword with some precision and in an effective way. We need God's Word dwelling in us. It's what we need. We need to hear it. We need to handle it. Number three, we've talked about this. We need to hide it. Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. When we memorize Scripture, we have it on hand to use against temptation that comes our way during our day. We also have it available to occupy our thoughts so that we can meditate on it throughout the day. So we need to memorize Scripture. And uh, I I think it wasn't too long ago I told you about my doctrines class where when on the first day of class, uh, we had to buy the doctrine's book by Thiessen, and then they handed us, when we bought the book, we had to purchase this uh, metal ring, and it had little cards on it. And I don't know how many hundred cards were on that ring. And I thought, boy, and then 
it was all scripture verses and passages. And when I got to class, I found out what that was all about. Every time we went to class, we met twice a week for an hour and a half each time. And every time we went to class, we were responsible, I think, for five of those cards. What do you mean responsible? We had to, before class began, teacher would say, okay, write your verses. And we would have to write out what was on five of those cards from memory. So we were, we were basically forced to memorize Scripture. And you know, sometimes that's what we have to do is force ourselves to memorize Scripture. And uh, if, you, if you're really wanting to memorize Scripture, and I found this to be true, a very good method is to get cards like that Write them yourself if you have to, or buy them, or whatever you need to do, and keep them in your pocket. Hmm? Keep them in front of you all day long. And pretty soon, they're a part of you. Um, I not only did that with my, my Bible verses, I did it with my Greek vocabulary. Just keep looking at it all day long. And uh, memorize, hide it, and then we need to hold it. Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. We're to hold forth God's word for others to see like a person holding a flashlight to benefit others in a dark place. Some of the strongest Christians are those who are active in sharing their faith. Mm-mm-mm. I, I'm not trying to rebuke, but one of the burdens I have is that we don't have more people out for soul winning. I don't understand why believers don't want to go tell people about Jesus. Hmm? You're glad you're saved, but there's a whole lost world out there that needs somebody to tell, tell them what somebody told you. But the strongest Christians are those who are actively sharing their faith. Why is that? Well, as they're witnesses for Christ, people ask questions. And that drives them to study God's word more. And so in time, they are grounded in the knowledge of biblical doctrine, which they have gleaned through the study over the years. Listen, when you start witnessing to people and talking to people about the Lord, it's going to drive you to get in the Bible so that you have what you need when you need it. Hmm? You and I are to be men and women of the word, and we, when we are, we'll also be men and women, women of wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. You know, a very simple definition of wisdom is wisdom is the ability to use knowledge correctly. That's a very simple definition of wisdom. See, you can have a lot of knowledge and not have wisdom. I think I've shared with you, I remember a fellow I went to college with when I first was out of high school. I went to community college. Uh, there was a fellow there who was a genius, and everybody knew it. I mean, he got all A's in his classes, and... But you know, that fellow had no common sense. He had all this knowledge, but he didn't know how to apply it. 
So he didn't have any wisdom. And we need to have not just knowledge, but we need to have wisdom. This wisdom only comes from by the Spirit's application of his word. When God's word dwells in us, it leads us to godly wisdom because we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Hmm. So we have the message of admonition. And then we want to see the ministry of admonition. The word of God settles in our hearts. We can begin this ministry of teaching and admonishing uh, as the word does dwell in our hearts. This is because when our hearts and our minds are saturated with God's word, we cannot help but overflow with biblical truth in our interactions with others. We'll be a better parent, a better spouse, a better friend, a better neighbor, a better boss, and a better employee because the word of God is dwelling in us richly. All of us are to be in the ministry of teaching and admonishing. And we notice the first thing, teaching. Verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another. That teaching there has the idea of imparting instruction. And so we may do this in different ways, in different methods. For instance, we may have crafts in a children's class. And uh, uh, right now, there's probably teachers downstairs uh, using crafts that we don't use up here in the adult class. Hmm? But there are different ways to impart teaching. Uh, we may con conduct uh, our, our, our family devotions in a different way. We may illustrate truth differently in a personal conversation. Than, uh, but the core of every teacher and teaching encounter should always be communicating the truth of the Bible to every individual. As this teaching is not just for adults, it's for teachers, teaching of children as well. And there's a quote here by Moody. Did you know he had a fifth grade education? Do, do you know he was, he was responsible, so to speak, for over a million people coming to Christ? See, it's not our talents and our abilities that God's looking for. It's availability. And D.L. Moody gave himself to the Lord completely. Fifth grade education. I didn't know that. I just learned it this week. But here's what he said. It is a masterpiece of the devil to make us believe that children cannot understand religion. Would Christ have made a child the standard of faith if he had known that it was not capable of understanding his word? I was just reading a book dealing with this very subject, children. And uh, when, when, when can they understand? And when should we baptize them? Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. And yes, children can understand enough to, to come to Christ. And uh, all too often we, we discount children as important. No, they're very important to the Lord. 
So our first goal is simple, to impart. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible is profitable for doctrine, and we need doctrine. Doctrine refers to what is right, the truth. And we need to, we need to understand doctrine. And then reproof, that's pointing out what's wrong. So we have pointing out what's right, doctrine. We have reproof, that's what's wrong. And then correction. Correction teaches us how to get our lives right with God. So we find reproof of what's wrong, and then we find correction. How do we make it right? And then instruction in righteousness shows us how to stay right in our lives. In addition to imparting instruction, teaching also instills doctrine in the life of a believer. Doctrine is not something that is only relevant for theologians or pastors. Doctrine is important to every Christian's life. In Acts 2, verse 42, we see that doctrine is the foundation of the early church. And over there it tells us, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You know, one of the problems in our churches today is there's not enough preaching and teaching of doctrine, and people are spiritual babes when it comes to that. They, they say they believe, but they don't really understand why they believe, and they don't really understand what they fully believe. That's why we need to be students of the Word and understand doctrine. We need to know what we believe in and understand truth and doctrine. We need to be taught doctrine. We need to stand firm in it. The church should be united around should not be united around worship style, personality, or anything else, but the truth of God's word. And then each of us ought to be able to share the truth of God's word with other people, and we'll talk about that in the morning message. Admonishing. We have teaching, we have admonishing, and it means to exhort, reprove, or caution to warn of the consequences of wrong behavior. There's a saying, a good leader can step on your toes without messing your shine. Hmm? I'll say that again. A good leader can step on your toes without messing up your shine. Though it's not an easy task, leaders must admonish someone whose conduct is detrimental to the work of God. And Proverbs 27, 17, iron as sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Hmm. How do you react when someone corrects your misconduct or your poor attitude? We talked about that in the opening. When someone loves you enough to admonish you, their care is a gift to you. Now, as a pastor, I'm often called upon for this very thing, have to reprove or admonish somebody. And I have to say this, it's not always well taken. Hmm? Sometimes people get offended and, and sometimes people think you're, you're trying to pick on them or being unfair to them. When in reality, you're showing your love and concern because 
uh, you will admonish them. Sometimes we need it. The admonishment is meant to help you. God commands us not only to teach doctrine, but also to admonish people when they're living contrary to doctrine. Admonishing is the negative side of teaching. So, Paul wrote the members of the church at Ephesus that they speak the truth in love, and when they did, they could help one another grow in spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4, he says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. And listen, we need to learn to speak the truth in love. Doesn't matter if it's with a fellow believer. Doesn't matter if it's with our children. Doesn't matter if it's with our mate. We need to speak the truth in love. Love ought to be the, the, the motivation for our uh, admonishing somebody or rebuking somebody. The fact that we care about them ought to be evident. Well, whether we receive a warning from the pulpit or a friend, we would be wise to listen to it, wiser to listen to it than to brush it off and say, I'll do it my way attitude. And then I came across this story, and, and boy, I didn't know this. But in 1986, two electrical engineers in the control room at Chernobyl, uh, that disaster site, they were playing around with the machine in what the Soviets later described as an unauthorized experiment. They were trying to see how long a turbine would freewheel when they took the power off of it. To perform the test, the engineers had to turn off six separate computer-driven alarm systems. When they did that, warnings were issued instructing them to re-engage the power supply. They ignored all six warnings. And what took place next was the greatest nuclear disaster in history. Listen, when warnings are given to us, we need to heed the warnings. And if it comes from a friend or it comes from a brother or sister in Christ or it comes from a, a parent or whoever it comes from, we need to learn to heed warnings. In the context of the church, how many times have we turned a deaf ear to warnings given by our pastor or our friend? Hmm. This fellow said, don't let your life be a nuclear waste. Don't ever suffer a meltdown just because you were too proud to receive admonishment. Hmm. Have you figured out yet you're not perfect? Yeah, we're not perfect. And from time to time, we need somebody to help us and tell us about problem areas of our life. And when they do, we need to accept it properly and be thankful for somebody who cares enough to talk to us. Hmm, admonishing. And I said in the home, regardless of where it might be, I'm going to give you the points for the last We don't have time to get into it, but admonition of music, songs, hymns, spiritual songs, 
and then grace. Grace in our hearts. Grace to the Lord. The Bible says we're to admonish one another. That's another command. We're to look out for each other. And when we see somebody going astray, we need to, in love, go to them and try to keep them on the right track, admonishing one another. Father, thank you for that command and help us to heed it. Help us to be willing to be used by you to admonish one another. And Lord, when somebody has to admonish us, help us to take it in the right sense, take it in the right way, that we might grow in our Christian faith and our beliefs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, service will start in just a few minutes.